Well, I know that you're here for a very specific reason, and that is uh, to understand this whole issue of digital dangers. And I had the privilege of being able to speak to this and write on this with this book that our staff created called Right Thinking Series. There's a whole series that we have done. And my chapter was on digital dangers or social media pitfalls. And the reason they gave that to me is because I came out of the entertainment business uh, many decades ago before I became a pastor. And so uh, they figured that maybe I know more about it. It's not true, but I have done a lot of research. So hopefully this will help you. You know that social media is everywhere. It's virtual. It is... um, To say it in a very short and succinct way, um, everywhere that you are, there it is. From the home to the car, from the workplace to the marketplace. We are inundated from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep with this just never-ending stream of social media messages that have been designed, by the way, to allure your thoughts and contour your mind. We have now such have an unprecedented amount of accessibility to all kinds of topics and peoples and sports and trends and weather and gossip that our whole world kind of feels like this stream of data that's coming at us. Social media is like a hidden underground river that just flows through every single aspect of our lives. And yet, ironically, and hopefully that's why you're here, people don't seem to understand the dangers of the raging current of social influence that is hidden underneath the waters. First, we have technological people that are are commenting. We have social commenters. We have religious commenters. We have all kinds of people that are, as as it were, putting their poles into the stream and allowing us to nibble on what it is that they are trying to bait us with. And so I want you to focus today and what we're going to do in a very condensed amount of time on the focus on the issues that we have before us in social media. And I want to show you how important this is and how extreme it's gotten. Number one, case in point, Grace Missions International, uh, our church's international missions uh, department, has the following now in their literature for missionaries. And this is what it says. Quote, social media can be a helpful way to communicate with your support team and keep people informed as to your prayer requests, praise reports, news, and needs. Used in the right way, social media can be a useful tool for missionaries. At the same time, improper or unwise use of social media can cause significant damage, meaning to your ministry. There can be damage to the ministry of another missionary, the ministry of Grace Community Church, or most significantly, it can bring disrepute on the name of Christ. And then the manual goes on just to identify all the different issues for our missionaries to consider. And I put that out there before you because if these are men who have been called into ministry, these are men who have been vetted by our church so they are excellent and they are skilled and they are family men, We are saying, yet you are still susceptible, are you not, to the dangers of social media, right? This is just part and parcel of it. So it's imperative, I think, just with that in the background that we know what is social media and what is that lies underneath it as a lion waiting to devour its most precious relationships. 
Now, I'm going to skip a lot of the information that I have here. If you're going, oh, no, we want all this information, don't worry. I am very verbose. But this, this seminar, in essence, is a, f- a few things. It's a, a clarion call to you for everyone to stand up and take note of the fact that we live in a different world. We live in a vastly different world than many of you from the moment you went to school till now. This seminar is designed to help you think through some of the most common temptations. We're not going to solve anything. We're not going to come in this room and all of a sudden you're going to be released from the bondage of this. I'm going to remind you of things that are very important for you to consider, maybe things that you haven't considered, maybe things that you don't want to consider so that at the end you'll be able to leave here knowing that there are some basic guidelines that you can follow. It's making sure that you understand the massive danger, and I don't use that word as hyperbole, the massive danger that lies before all of us. So let me ground this first in Scripture, and then I'm going to kind of make some observations. But first, go to 2 Corinthians 10, just quickly, because I want you to know and understand why this is so imperative to the life of the believer. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. And again, this is just a a short kind of skimming over some of the most important parts, but I think that you'll get the gist of it even as I read 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, look real quick at verse 4, fortresses. Uh, the, the fortresses, these, these devout, they're strongholds if you have the Legacy Standard Bible. What is that? On one side of the coin, a stronghold is a massive place of fortification. It is a massive place that protects those people uh, in the inside from those who are on the outside. And if you're in a fortress, you're ready to defend yourself. And Paul says Christians are to destroy the fortresses of the world that we are to destroy, what does that mean, these strongholds? Well, when you ask what are strongholds in this context, and you can go back and review this, we have divinely powerful weapons for destroying these strongholds, these fortresses, these speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And that kind of defines what these fortresses or strongholds are. We are destroying speculations and thoughts and ideas and reasonings and philosophies. That's what it means. We're trying to break down those thoughts of the world so that we protect ourselves and we are keeping ourselves accountable to God. And I want you to know something just real quickly again. Uh, these, these strongholds are not demons. You can go back and look at the context. Many people say that. That's why I wanted to put that out in the beginning. We have a lot of people who define spiritual warfare as chasing demons. The Bible doesn't define it like that. Our enemy, very important, has formed uh, from demonic sources and ideologies, not demons themselves. They are doctrines of demons, yes, They come from seducing spirits through hypocritical liars that build these great edifices to human wisdom and demonic doctrine, yes. But we, listen, assault the system. We assault the system. We don't chase spirits. 
we attack with Scripture the strongholds that our society has. So that means every concept, every opinion, every reason, every philosophy, every theory, every thought, every story is against God. That's a fortress. They're just adding more chairs back there. That's what that disrupts. If someone starts to scream, you'll know why. Um, So this is very strong stuff. Every lofty thing, every speculation is going to have to be attacked that's raised up against the gospel of God. Now, I want to fast forward from there because, again, I want you to know that what you're battling is an idea. What you're battling is an idea for your family, a concept, and it is real as your next breath, but it is something that you must kind of wrap your mind around. This is naturalistic thinking. Do you know what that is? Naturalistic thinking is what we combat. Naturalistic thinking is atheist. Atheism. Uh, Who are the atheists, you think? Well, listen to this. Judges? Really? Uh, Journalists? No kidding. Uh, Teachers? uh, Directors? Producers? People who actually produce the things that you watch day in and day out? You know who some of these atheists, these naturalists are in the entertainment industry? Let me just name a few of them to you. Morgan Freeman, atheist. George Clooney, atheist. Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Woody Allen, Frank Sinatra. Well, Frank Sinatra's not an atheist anymore. Now is he? (laughs) Billy Joel, Jodie Foster, Natalie Portman, Kevin Bacon. It just goes on and on and on. And you're thinking, these are the people that entertain us. One time I was doing a Q&A, question and answer time, and I was involved with it. And Susan Sarandon, who's an actress, was there. And she said something that I thought was very, very uh, amazing. She said that all film was political. All filmmaking was political. And this was, I don't know, three decades ago. And I remember thinking at the time, that's not true. That's not true. And then she told us that she had named her daughter Eve I thought, oh, that's special. And she said, because Eve was the first feminist in the world. So these are the people, and she's right. It is political. Every single film, every single book, every single show, everything has an agenda. And if if you don't believe that, then I'm here to, to tell you that it's time to be awake. And it's time not to be naive because these are the strongholds, the fortresses that we must attack. God has no place in public life. You know that. God has no place in education. That's why we have Grace Academy. God has no place in government or social policy or law or courts or, or entertainment. And so with that as a backdrop for you, please understand that atheism is our time. Evolutionary atheism of our time are the ideological fortresses that Paul is speaking of. So with that in your mind, I want to skip to something that I hope you understand. First of all, let me just make this one comment. Um, I think a few years ago, I heard this concept and I liked it. I just put that before you because it might be helpful. Have you ever heard of a Trojan horse? You probably have. Okay, so that's very important. It's a huge, hollow, wooden horse constructed by the Greeks to gain entrance into Troy during the Trojan War. And the Greeks just pretending to desert the war and to sail to a nearby island left behind this Trojan horse, and the, of course, enemy was inside of it. It was snuck into the fortress of the people trying to be conquered, and the Greeks emerged from it, opened the gates, and let all the returning Greek army in, 
And therefore, the Trojan horse has become a metaphor to refer to subversion introduced from the outside. Make sense? So I want you to think of social media, and I don't mean to be a big disappointment, but you all know this, as the Trojan horse of our time. The Trojan horse of our culture, entertainment, is the Trojan horse of America. So all that to be said, I want you to go with me through this seminar with some awarenesses. And if you're taking notes, this is where you would start to take notes. Five areas of social media's influence on the life of a believer. I want you to know this. I want you to be aware of it because I think it might be a little bit surprising. Maybe you've thought it before, but you never put it into words. And so hopefully this is going to be helpful. Five areas in this seminar that we're going to look at, five different areas that media promotes in the life of a believer that is harmful. Number one, if you're taking notes, the first area of influence that media promotes is a false view of intimacy. Just write that down. I'm going to explain it. A false view of intimacy. So easy access to social media, as you may know, because I see a couple of heads already bobbing up and down in agreement, can create a sense of false intimacy with those whom you are interacting. Because people have been created by God to desire closeness with one another, and because intimacy is just the natural product of the human condition, if you will, desire for intimacy is imperative and yet at the same time challenging. It's challenging to gain through God-ordained means. And so sometimes people inadvertently start to seek intimacy through other means, other means outside of God. And at first, it doesn't seem to be conscious, this, this desire for intimacy. People don't always realize the power that lies in them for wanting closeness. But once the convenience of texting, and yeah, I'm going to throw it under the bus a little bit, uh, social media browsing and interactions uh, of that sort, the unsuspecting one can kind of enter into the door of self-deception and be mesmerized by the intimacy that it seems to propose. Most of us realize, and if you don't, you will find out, that real intimacy in relationships is hard work really hard work. Not that it can't be fun work, but it's difficult. Real intimacy, real honest-to-goodness intimacy between human beings require a give and take in something called reality. You've heard of that. Reality, which is the opposite of imaginary. So reality, as we are finding out, is not always what we want it to be. Real intimacy happens when two people are open and honest and patient and forgiving and accepting and committed to each other no matter what. False intimacy, listen to this, happens when someone is lying, anxious, hiding, partially open, selective, honest, selectively honest, and uncommitted. And so false intimacy happens when you really, when you have... Uh, relationships with people that don't live with you. And I'm right now thinking of something that is so funny. I was, it's not funny in a, in a ha-ha way. Uh, I was uh, counseling uh, some folks and, um, oh, I'm just going to say it. He was talking about all this, the, the desires that he has in relationships with other people outside of his marriage. And his wife uh, was in the room after he left and her, their daughter and And I was just speaking, that's so delusional. He does not understand that when you try to seek out relationships with people that don't know you, for five minutes you seem like a really wonderful person. And then they get to know you. 
and then they know your history, and then they know what your habits are, and they know everything about you. Real intimacy doesn't happen in a vacuum. So according to the latest research, we now text one another more than we speak to one another. And if you don't believe that, text me. To make matters worse, a considerable proportion of the few remaining conversations that we do have with people involved uh, texting rather than talking. One survey says that young women in particular now use text speak in their main conversational slang, as if we hadn't noticed that. Uh, you know, LOL, FYI, uh, BFF, OMG, which is horrible. Uh, now it's in the Oxford English Dictionary, OMG. Uh, people try to say it's goodness, but you know it means God. So some studies have said that people are led into adultery three times faster through social media, like texting, than average. Studies have found that people communicate online often fall for each other within one week. Uh, That's two or three times as fast as those who are courting each other face-to-face. One study says this, when you don't have have nonverbal communication... The likelihood of being able to disclose at a deeper level is greater because there's less inhibition. So it's going to feel like a more intimate relationship. Social media enables that. I once counseled another couple, and if I counsel you, don't, don't worry, uh, where the wife was convinced her husband was leaving for a weekend trip to get closer to the Lord, but found herself somehow kissing a man that she works with in a different town not far from here. And what started then in the texting as, did you receive the order, evolved into have a great weekend, you're too funny, where are you now? So I want you to know that texting can create false intimacy. Am I against texting? No, I unfortunately text all the time. I, I, I text information not intimacy. Now, it's important to note that texting, Facebook, tweeting, Instagramming, all the other forms, that is not the reason for infidelity. And I'm just putting it out there for you. It's always a heart that is hungry for something that God has not given. That's the reason for it. That is sin. But James says we lust and do not have, so we sin, and some people sin through these means. Augustine said our hearts are restless until they rest in you. All human issues are are the heart, and the heart sometimes is completely deceitful in ways that you never imagine. So social media affects our interactions by robbing us of being in a room where one person says to another person something, it's called conversation, where you listen to the other person, and then you read nonverbal communication, and then by altering your responses to that nonverbal communication, you either respond fully or not fully based on what's happening between the two of you. That's called real life. And that's what social media eradicates. Now, I'm going to move on because I think you get the gist of that. That's the first thing. The first false awareness, uh, false falseness that media gives us is this false awareness of, of, of intimacy. Number two, there's a second falseness. And that is, and maybe I can start to slow it down here, a false awareness of isolation. Social media gives us a false awareness of isolation. Now, if you think about this for a second, you're going to go, I totally know what you're talking about. Social media has a strange way of luring people into a mindset of isolation without them ever noticing that it's happening. Many times we have a false awareness of the fact that we're beginning to more and more isolate from one another 
which inhibits them from being engaged in some good old-fashioned conversation. In fact, it was Pastor John MacArthur that said this, privacy is the number one threat to your Christian faith. Did you hear that? Privacy is the number one threat to your Christian faith. Well, why would he say that? Because it's very subtle, very, very subtle. In fact, author Ivan Meisner explains in his article in Business Week, uh, he says, if you go to Facebook or other social media, you read a comment and it takes you to another link and now you're on YouTube watching someone's video and pretty soon something weird happens in the time-space continuum and you look up and you've lost two hours. So from the very outset, this kind of online browsing comes through the surreal reality that you've begun to isolate from the world. Do you understand that? You can spend a whole lot of time in cyber world and it has no effect whatsoever on the real world. And which comes the next stage when you've not noticed the passing of time when you're together, and that becomes normal. It becomes normal. In fact, the more than norm, being isolated, get this, becomes your coveted desire. There's this secular book that I came across, which I thought uh, addresses this phenomena really well, but I like the title. The title is Alone Together. Alone Together. That says it all. More and more married couples, whole families are alone together. There's a commercial, you've probably seen it, where trades a family at dinner and each person's texting each other on at the same time. Instead of saying passing the potatoes, they just text that. And everybody's head is down, and it's, it's surreally real and, and, and odd, but at the same time, it is reality. So the only difference with the, with the times that we live in now, some people would say is, well, we always had newspapers, we had books, people had their heads in the books, isn't that the same thing? Aren't you just kind of uh, over-dramatizing this? No, I don't think so, because the difference between a book and a newspaper and the Internet is the, the Internet is endless, there's no end. When you're done with the paper, you fold it and you're done. Is there even a paper anymore? I don't know. That seems like such an antiquated thing to say, right? You read a newspaper? <laughs> uh, newspaper, what's that? Uh, it's made out of wood. But no, it's, uh, it's, you know, a book. You've seen books. You have them in your hand. There's a beginning, middle, and an end. But to the Internet, there is no such thing. We stare into screens and not faces. We gaze into pixels and not people. And, according to research, we're becoming lonelier than ever before. But I thought you had friends. Don't you have a lot of friends? Not according to research. John MacArthur again writes, Social media often distracts people from existing relationships. Instead of pouring themselves into real-life friendships they currently have, people now spend hours with pseudo-friends online. This is especially seen within the family where social networking constantly threatens to invade, bringing a barrage of cultural influence into the private world of family life. Consider this scenario. I'm sure many of you cannot relate to this at all. Man comes home. Honey, I'm home. Wife shouts out from the other room. I'm on the computer. Uh, Husband grabs his iPad. What's for dinner? Uh, She says, Googling, uh, pizza, heat it up. Uh, Husband says, scrolling Facebook, want some? Wife in the other room, I'm good. And, And the slow erosion of never, ever seeing the other person. Not even the dog wants to come near you. The, the, the whole thing is the whole thing is this strange environment 
called being alone together. And more and more people are feeling isolated by the same tool that purports to bring them closer. Hey, listen, we don't talk about us anymore. We don't plan about us. We don't really acknowledge us at all anymore because, quite frankly, we're not the biggest thing in the room. You know what I'm saying? Now the biggest thing in the room is the entire world. We, we, we're at the world's fingertips now. What sits with us for dinner is the worldwide guest of the Internet. We can never escape it, but we have to be aware of it. There's another false sense of reality. Number three, if you're taking notes, not only does media foster a false sense of intimacy and a false sense of isolation, but get this, it also, it also fosters a false sense of intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, intelligence is, is hampered. Social media affects our families and marriages, and it actually makes us believe that we're using our God-given time to gain important information that might benefit us and grow us and expand us as people when, honestly, all it's doing is slowing down your ability to learn. In other words, we're reading the Bible together as an activity that we do where we're growing and thinking and pondering and wrestling the truth. The same activity of Googling and texting and I don't even know what to call it anymore, fixbooking, I guess that's a term, is creating more of an ability to disintegrate our relationships and our intelligence. It's a facade. It creates a false sense of intelligence. We're allowing the coolness of media and the instant gratification of being able to leave the room in a cyber way without leaving the room in a literal way to convince us that our lives are not being stunted and our lives given away. One author writes this, maybe this helps. This is, I think, the real danger of social media and Twitter. It challenges, it changes, excuse me, the way I process information. So get this. It changes the way I process information. Or to be more precise, I no longer process information. I merely consume it. I speed read hundreds of bits of articles a day, absorbing lots of information, but rarely actually thinking about it. The difficult thoughts, ambivalent thoughts, the repulsive thoughts, the thoughts too complicated to be reduced to a tweet, they are labeled low priority and sent on the back office of my mind, end quote. So we are being seduced, and just be honest with yourself, by a media that presents itself to us as entertainment, as Neil Postman said years ago, entertaining ourselves to death. We stop learning, we stop growing, and it even affects how we understand the Bible, and it affects how we understand each other. And I really think that this is true, and it really takes a a pressure within the family, a loving pressure to make sure that we all understand. And I bring this to you because I think that we must be aware of what we're doing because redeeming the time is a very important biblical principle. And it's really not an issue to me of dumbing down my marriage, uh, but I would be very hard to believe that you're not dumbing down your marriage. I, I would be very hard for me to believe that you're not making the, the goal of closer intimacy and exchanging of important ideas a lesser truth. So the real issue is that we are relearning what is important away from each other, away from talking to one another in separate rooms. And it gives us the illusion that in some way we are being benefited or satisfied, but in reality we are va- wasting our most precious commodity, which is time. Time. We have 
little time. And we do this under the premise that what we're doing is a benefit when it's not. Again, Ephesians 5.16, making the most of your time because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16. So, look, challenge yourself. I want you to not just leave this seminar uh, thinking that, well, that was interesting. Challenge yourself. Ask yourself. Next time that you and your wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or family members are on Facebook or, or whatever you're doing, and the clock is running and the dial is circling, ask yourself, am I avoiding the person that is next to me? Am I avoiding them? Is it easier for me to be sitting over here allowing them to be over there because I feel like the big thaw has set in and I don't know what to do? My suggestion when it comes to marriage, pull yourself off of Facebook and download yourself onto your spouse's face. A lot more fun, a lot more educational. There's a fourth reality, right? I'm just saying. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. There's a fourth sense of reality here that media has to us. That is not only is there a false sense of intimacy and isolation, and it fosters a a false sense of intelligence, but now, and you're all going to relate to this, a false sense of image. Internet, social media, the pitfall is it fosters a false sense of image. There is something about social media that creates an imaginary image of ourselves and our roles in society. First, just briefly, let me address this idea of how social media really distorts our sense of ourselves, specifically through our pride, okay? Pride. Dr. Lauren Laporta, chairman of the Department of Psychiatric at St. Joseph's, believes that the popularity of social networking sites is a direct result of the growing narcissism in American culture. There's just no question. She writes this in Psychiatric Times. It is my contention that these sites would not have risen to such prominence but for the fact that a generation of narcissists needed an outlet. YouTube? Hello, McFly? YouTube? Of course. It's about you. She didn't say that, I did. The millennial generation needed a way to assert their uniqueness, their specialness, and garner the attention of praise of the masses. So I'm trying to be kind of tongue-in-cheek about this, but we've become a delusional society. We have. So pride now has found a playground, and pride's playground is social media. And that being said, let me address something that you're aware of, but I'm not sure that maybe you see as significant Social media in general, and then specifically Facebook, YouTube, Google, and specific, bring us all in contact with dangerously false views of success, family, beauty, and love. A study done by German researchers in Humboldt University in Berlin took a sample of 357 German students of which three users cited jealousy as the leading cause of Facebook induced bad feelings. They call it Facebook envy. (laughs) I get that, you know. Isn't it odd? I mean, if if you're my friend on Facebook, sorry. But everything's just great with you. In fact, I was counseling someone the other day, and I said, man, you guys are taking a lot of vacations. That's awesome. And they're going, well, it's not really like that, you know. just kind of looks that way. And I know, but that's how you want it to look. You want it to look like we are just having the time of our life. I would, like, I would actually like people to start to put on Facebook, um, you know, themselves like in a ditch or something. 
you know. I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to have people, like, sit there and going, yeah, having to dig this out again. You go, oh, man, sorry about that, you know. <laughs> no more Hawaii. <laughs> uh, but it would just be a little bit more humbling, wouldn't it? The viewing of someone else's life and their successes and their vacations and their beauty, please don't change your books, Facebooks to holes and digging things, uh, can, fall, can make people fall into depression. And more and more access to the per- pictures and details of other people's lives give us a sinful view of our own lives. And while women see women and envy beauty as something they want for themselves, that opens a door for sinful comparisons and sometimes unhealthy routines that make beauty on the outside the woman's goal. And this is especially important for our daughters to understand. Last year, I was introduced to a trend that really put this into perspective. I personally knew of a student of mine who's an actress that I worked with for a year, and by all accounts, a very attractive woman, but she was constantly going in for elective surgery. And she would come to work looking like she had someone punch her lights out. And I was just so thrown by that, and I would ask her, like, what happened? And sheepishly, she would say, I, I just had my this or that done. And it was just so sad to me because a, a woman, a, a pretty girl, couldn't be pretty enough no matter what happened. And I just think that's not just an issue, by the way, for women. That's an issue for, for men as well. Men see beauty that belongs to a woman that's not their wife, and they can become lustful after it. All because this is put on display 24 hours a day, seven days a week to them. Men, just to be real with you for a moment, There has never been a time in the history before where so many images from so many people have been so widely available to view and to distract and create a cause for sin as the influx of modern media, right? Never. More and more access to the pictures and details of other people's lives gives a sinful view of our own lives, and we begin to covet other people's lives, and then sin starts to dominate. And sin is sin, and you are accountable, and I am accountable for what you look at without a doubt. But you need to be aware that you and I live in a time where you can see by the push of a button what no one else in the history of mankind could have seen in numbers so great. It actually exceeds your natural ability to absorb it. We're not created for that. Solomon searched the world during his lifetime for 700 beautiful wives and took a massive amount of effort and time and resources where a kid today can see 700 pornography pictures in a few minutes. So brace yourself. These are statistics. You have to talk about them. Largest consumers of pornography are 12 to 17-year-old boys. Did you get that? 12 to 17. 90% of children ages 9 to 16 have viewed porn at some time. 38% of adults say pornography is morally acceptable. 50% of those who call themselves pastors say they have viewed pornography sometime this year. Keith Lambert, in a book that he wrote called Finally Free, I would commend that book to you. He says, men look at pornography out of an arrogant desire to see women in a way that God does not allow. They show arrogant defiance to God's commands, rejecting the delight of sexual intimacy in marriage and deciding for themselves what they believe is better. They show arrogant disregard for God to call selfless, uh, excuse me, they show arrogant disregard for God's call to selfless marital love. 
They show arrogant disdain for their own children by hiding their sin and inviting the enemy into their home and their marriage. They show arrogant disrespect toward all those who would be scandalized if their sin were known. The root problem with men who look at porn is not neediness, it is arrogance, end quote, arrogance. Sin is lying at the door, just like it says in Genesis. And it's crouching and it's waiting for you to proceed through. And it's spring-loaded. It's spring-loaded because when you walk through, you don't notice what you don't notice. And sin is hoping that that would be true. And you cannot see what you need to see. And I'm trying to help you to see the world as it really is so that you don't enter into situations like that with great naivete. Instead, great discernment. There is a fifth sense of reality. And I think this is very important. They all start with I uh, to help you. Not only a false sense of intimacy and isolation and intelligence and image, but now, fifthly, a false sense of importance. (laughs) Importance. Now, you might think I'm speaking of a false sense of your own personal importance, which would be true. But I'm speaking of here of social media's ability to make you believe that media is important. You think that you have to have it. You think that media is important to your life. You, you believe that the entire world of media influence is important to your individual world when it's not. It gives you a false sense of its own importance. The access that social media gives you and the entire world gives you it gives you a sense that somehow you're missing out, right, if you're not plugged in. You have a, a feeling that the only thing that's really relevant in life is what is online. When truth is that our exposure to these thousands upon thousands of many little epic stories is ultimately inconsequential to anything of substance in life. Media, let, get this, has become our culture's substitute for meaning. Ponder that. Media has become our culture's substitute for meaning. In other words, we believe we are connected to the hustle and bustle of life through social media. And we are afraid that if we disconnect from social media, we disconnect from what's important in life. Unless we feel as if that we are in the center of the universe, the news universe, the, the, the trend universe, We have no life that we need to be connected to the universe or we're going to be, we're going to die of underexposure. No longer is communication of information the goal. Media now has taken its own life. The device of media is now just as important as the information. And so we consume it and we consume it. And products are sold. And there's so many different documentaries you can watch on this about social media and the influence, how the thing itself is really just a big advertisement. And so if you're duped by that, you need to be hip to it because it's not of God and it's certainly not helpful to your edification. Now, the Bible says we need to stand clear of temptations, right? And not busy ourselves with those things that don't matter. And so I want to take you someplace that's a little unlikely, but I think it's going to be helpful. Uh, Go to 1 Timothy if you have your Bibles with you, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, This is really underlines this whole issue of shepherding yourself through the temptations of cyber sin, even though cyber sin is never mentioned here. 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 10. And as you're turning there, let me just kind of explain. In the early church, 
there was a list of local body of believers would develop within the church. You've probably heard about this before, where elderly women with husbands who had died uh, were considered to be widows indeed. And Paul describes those women and how they should be in verses 9 and 10. However, he says that there are some widows, and this is Paul speaking, that should definitely not be on this widow list, widows indeed list. And he addresses them in verses 11 through 16. Now, if you're, if you're keeping up with me, because you're going to be thinking, I thought we were talking about social media. Just, just hang with us. Catch this. You're going to understand this. Think of the thought first. There is a kind of woman that shouldn't be put on a list as a widow. Why would that be? Some dear lady's husband dies and she shouldn't be put on the list. Why? So if you're in chapter 5, look, let's just go to verse 11 and 12. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Now, what is he saying? Technically speaking, these younger widows really didn't have a thorough understanding of their own heart. They think that they're ready to commit themselves to the Lord's work. I'm going to be a widow, a widow indeed. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to deny myself marriage. I'm going to deny my flesh. I'm going to just wash other people's feet. But they don't understand, listen to this, the power of temptation within themselves as young widows. They're still in the stage of life where they might feel wanting to be married. And more often than not, even though their husbands have died, over time those feelings are going to tempt them to break the pledge that they gave to never marry again and be a widow indeed. And Paul says, don't put them through that. Don't put them on the list. They're young. They might want to get married again. Don't make them pledge to have to be single for the rest of their life. Young women who have lost their husbands because of their youth don't understand the issues of their heart. There's going to be, and here's the key, now we're narrowing in, a restlessness in them. They will be desiring to, to go, do things and, and go places and be with people that they don't understand because now their husband is gone. All of the energies that they had that were responsibilities where they needed to care for him, they needed to cook and clean and, and, and take care of, of the responsibilities around the home, Now those things have been released from them, and they don't realize that's going to happen. And Paul, who's experienced, says, watch those young, inexperienced widows, because what you're going to see is that their desires start to be activated. And note with me, side point, pastor's responsibility in this context, really Sundays in July, is to help you understand things about yourself that maybe you don't understand, that these things are going to happen. That's what Paul was saying to the church. And so this relates much more than just understanding your heart to marry. It, it, it goes to, and just follow with me, the responsibilities of a life. The responsibilities. In ancient times, people's, a woman's responsibilities were very heavy. And when a man died, there weren't any children, it seems. They were, they were prone to idleness. And idleness sets in, and then all of a sudden, there's too much time on their hands, and temptation comes. Are you following me? Now, look at this. This is where it gets interesting. Go to verse 13. At that same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. So instead of learning to love, they learn to be idle. You see that? 
So, so again, catch this. They attempt to fill the vacuum that was created by the absence of their husband by involving themselves in other people's affairs. Busybodies. You know what a busybody is? I like this definition. The kind of person you just want to punch in the mouth for being so annoying. I don't think that's in the Bible, but uh, they have no life and way too much time on their hands. They frequently use their excessive amount of time to annoy and monitor others, tattletale for small, meaningless issues, butt into everybody else's business except their own, spy on people as if they think they're a cop or an important person. What is a busybody, technically speaking, according to Scripture? It's a body that's busy. It's a body that keeps busy. It it means just to walk around the Greek verb, just to to be active. So let me put it this way. A busybody is someone who involves themselves in the business and speculations of other people's lives because their own life is uninteresting, unfulfilled, and unattractive to them. As one commentator said it, since she had nothing of her own to take up her attention, she would be very apt to be over-interested or over-interesting in the affairs of others. So listen to me. If you, if you hear almost anything in this, hear this. If your life is not full, you will try to fill it up with the lives of others. If your life is not full with the things that it should be full of, prayer, worship, honoring God, trying to help others. You will fill it up with the nuances and the minutia of others. If your life isn't full with either work or more importantly with meaning, then you're going to try to fill it with meaning any way you can. I have seen this. I have counseled this. And placing your attention on the details of other people, not important details, interest of others, the latest news, the latest trends, the the latest distraction allows you, follow me, not to put your attention on what you need to put your attention on in your own life. We live our lives like we're young widows who have nothing better to do than stick their noses into the affairs of others. We have chosen somewhere along the way to live vicariously through the adventures of other people rather than focusing on the needs at home. Learning to love takes work. It takes struggle. It takes effort. It takes giving in. It takes losing battles for the sake of the bigger goal. And sometimes it's just easier, I know, to turn on the television or the computer or to gaze into the circumstances and the details and the fascinations of others. But you, my friends, are wasting your life. One click at a time, you are harmful and slothful and dangerous, and you need to start to love your family and love your spouse, and you need to be aware of what you're doing. So the underlining issue here, 1 Timothy 5, is this. Be careful how you spend your time. Be careful to fill your life with precious things like marriage and children and your home, or else you will fall prey to filling your life with the secret successes and failures of others. A long time ago, someone gave it to me this way. It's not in the Bible, but it's helpful. They said, if you're not playing a big enough game, you'll mess up the one you're playing just to give yourself something to do. If you're not playing a big enough game, you'll just mess up the one you're playing to give yourself something to do. In other words, if you're not treating your life, your life in Christ, your involvement in church, your intimacy in marriage to be a big enough extravaganza to hold your attention then you'll involve yourself in the minutia of media 
and escape that gnawing responsibility that tells you you're wasting your life. Chuck Swindoll many years ago said, if you do what you ought to do, then you won't have time to do the things you ought not to do. So simple, so true. And the great temptation underlying social media is, listen, you're not making enough of your life. You're not making a big enough deal of your life. Sometimes your night life isn't a big enough deal to you. Sometimes your marriage isn't as important to you as it ought to be. Love God. Love others. If you, if you spend more time in the Scripture, and of course you can read the Scripture online. I'm not saying you can't go online. I'm not saying that you can't do anything. I'm saying be aware that when you are in the Bible, in Scripture, it's going to change your heart. It's going to mess with your affections for this world. It's going to glean you away from it. And all of a sudden, you're going to have to repent, and you're going to have to think of ways to serve. You're going to have to think of ways to love. So sometimes turning off the device and engaging the person is another way of saying, you know what, you're more interesting to me than this. And I know that's hard. I know it's challenging because some of us in marriages and in regular relationships and engagements and all the different kinds of forms of of interactions with people, we've made it difficult for people to like us. And we've made it difficult for us to get people into our lives. So don't resort to the easy way, which is the wrong way, which is the bad way. Make it your ambition to have a different kind of life. What is that? Lastly, and this is it, go to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 will end with this. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verses 9 through 12, and I'll just read them to you, and our time will be done with a few comments. 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 9, now concerning love of the brethren, Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. You have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to excel still more and to make it, listen to this, your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will walk properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Make it an ambition to lead a quiet life. Make it an ambition. And since verse 10, by the way, is connected to verse 11, you could say it this way. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, excel still more. Keep excelling in making your life not about what's out there in the world, but make it a life that's honorable to God. Make a major effort to do nothing in terms of the world. Make a major effort to relax, remain silent, keep your mouth closed, don't say anything, quiet down, and love others. And the root idea here is to be peaceable. So, In my end here, social media, how did we get to this? Christians are to live quiet, relaxed, restful, peaceful lives in the face of persecution, in the face of anticipation of the Lord's return, and in face of about just everything else. And the reason is because they needed to quiet down because to take care of our own business, to concentrate on our own life, to make people see the richness of the gospel in its totality in our lives. So does that ring a bell with you at all, that that might be something you need to do? And just so you know, 
You can know about stuff, but don't get consumed with it. Don't get consumed. Spend your time learning how to love one another rather than getting all worked up about issues that don't really concern you. I, I can't tell you how many times in a, in a day that someone might come to me in different venues of my life and say, did you know? Did you know about, you know, fill in the blank? Oh, my, my. And I'm sitting there going, I didn't, I didn't know about it. And I'm fine. I mean, does it affect me? No, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I didn't know. You didn't know? No, I'm, I didn't know. I, and, I, and I don't feel like I'm an idiot for not knowing. I, I kind of feel like that's the best thing to do. I'm, I'm just taking care of my business and taking care of my family and taking care of the flock of God, loving others. And sometimes, and this is a, sometimes all you have to do, folks, is just look and say, what's right in front of you? Not the screen. What's right in front of you? That's where you put your attention. The influence of social media makes us misunderstand true intimacy. We're fooled concerning the dangers of isolation. We're tricked into thinking that we're more, that it's more intelligent than it is. We're seduced into believing that uh, it's important. It wasn't that we wanted to become more isolated from our spouses. It's not that we were looking for a way to distract ourselves. It just happened. I'll never forget, and I'll totally end on time. Um, a few years ago after Christmas, our kids were young, and I was just looking around the family room, and a football game was on, and I really love football. And I looked up, and I noticed that all my kids' heads were playing their, you know, football games on their phone, or they didn't have phones at the time on something. What was that? No, anyway, they had something. And Lori was on the computer, and I was on my iPad, and I thought, we're not together. We're drifting into la-la land. We're in the same room, but what happened? I want, don't think I'm old-fashioned, even though I want board games back. I want charades. I want telling stories. I want you to protect your family. It was Augustine that said the most important, practical conclusion to this. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me, talking about salvation, when I was rid of those fruitless joys which once had feared to lose and I was now glad to reject. He's speaking to God. You drove me from them. You who are the true sovereign joy. You drove me them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts, you who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. When you hear someone pray like that, don't you want to know what he's talking about? Not that you're not saved, Not that you don't know him. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But you want that quality of life that sees God as the most important element in reality and that you can live through the joy of knowing that he's in charge and that he goes before you constantly in prayer. Are you going to go out and be on the Internet after this? Of course you are. Of course you are. I know people. I am one. But I also know this, that you need to tread carefully. And you need to be wise as serpents. 
We need to be innocent as doves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And as short and as abbreviated as it was, I just pray that it gave a little bit of an insight into what we all wrestle with, and that is the newness of the latest gadget, the newness of all that technology has provided, the intrigue and the excitement of those things which we have never seen that slowly have the power to distract us away from the most important things in life. You, O God, your word, our families, our friends, We ask that you might deliver us from those things that tempt us to be distracted. I pray that we would be completely focused from this day forward on giving ourselves a diet, a diet from those things that could harm us and a full engagement to those things that feed our souls. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.